This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with a friend and occasional guest. We're going to try to make it a little more occasional. My friend uh, Kevin DeSanto, partner. Uh, managing partner, something at Kips DeSanto, an M&A firm. Kevin, welcome back to the show, man. Mark, thanks for having me. I always appreciate the invite, and I always wait longingly for it. So uh, it's great to <laughs> it's great to have it happen every year. I appreciate seeing you and uh, and getting a chance to chat again. Uh, been a crazy crazy year. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're. We're, we're going to get into that, but I mean, we're here partially because you've just uh, about six weeks ago completed your fourth annual aerospace defense and government tech uh, M&A survey, but you were on the show before you guys actually did the the annual survey, and you're on because you guys are a significant player in that merger and acquisition space in uh, our wonderful market here in D.C. So bring us up to date on Kips DeSanto and particularly give me a little bit of an update on your new uh, parent. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. It's been um, it's been a, a fun and interesting and challenging and rewarding journey for us. So um, 2020 was our 13th year in uh, business. We started back in 20, uh, 2007. And uh, we were uh, four of us at the beginning, and uh, we've got 40 uh, folks on the team today. Uh, We've been able to uh, continue to grow and expand uh, despite some of the broader economic and market challenges of 2020. And as you said, we were uh, fortunate enough to be able to partner with Capital One in September of 2019. And it was really a, a neat opportunity for us as an organization to be able to really, uh, I think, in, improve on uh, and increase the impact that we have uh, across aerospace, defense, and government, which are our target sectors. Um, Capital One is obviously a, a significant financial services organization, has a very significant uh, commercial and retail bank uh, that, that resides in there. Um, some of the local routes are back to Chevy Chase uh, Bank and GE Capital. And um, really a, a business that has uh, lots of industry specialties and expertise, and in particular has those areas of expertise in aerospace and defense, um, in healthcare and technology, and uh, all three areas that are very meaningful to us. And we thought it'd be a really fun way for us to, to be more relevant for um, our clients, uh, to increase the relationships and, and opportunity to work with private equity funds across the country and to ultimately uh, be a growth platform inside of a much larger organization, um, you know, as, as we look to, to build our footprint and to increase the, the volume of transactions that we're supporting and to really be a better advisor for our clients based on all that experience and activity. 
um, you know, they were uh, really a, a, a very interesting and, and fun uh, entrepreneurial organization that treats their people great and, uh, you know, was really interested in bringing us in and adding us into the team. So it's been a, uh, almost 18 months now since that happened. And, uh, you know, if you had told me that the 18 months would look the way that they have, I would have told you you were crazy, uh, <laughs> you know, working from home and uh, transitioning to a remote uh, environment and, um, you know, trying to, to get deals done when, when we're not meeting face to face with folks in a lot of cases. Uh, it's been quite, quite the journey. Uh, but very thankful and appreciative for for what they've been able to bring to the table to help us stay focused on the job and, and do a great job for our clients. And uh, we completed 20 transactions in 2020. Uh, very much uh, as as you kind of mentioned earlier, a roller coaster. Uh, yeah, there was some some days in there where it didn't look like any deals would get done last year, but it quickly rebounded and we were able to finish, and uh, particularly in the back half of the year, very strongly. And you know that level of uh, performance was consistent with what we saw in 2019 as well, which was really across the sectors that we focus on. Uh, it, 2019 was a peak year in in M&A transaction activity. So for us to to do that in 2020, uh, we were pretty proud of that, and I think our team uh, was extremely resilient, and uh, our clients and and their partners, their advisors were extremely resilient and. And the market overall showed, um, you know, a lot of strength in the face of some some real challenges. So we were excited to see that. Can't say that I predicted it or projected it, uh, but ultimately, you know, we were able to get in and take advantage of that on behalf of our clients. Yeah, it's kind of uh, neat to see that the number of deals didn't drop off precipitously in 2020, because when you go back eight or nine years, we were in the uh, 200s in the deals. So, you know, 2012, 260, and then 13, it dropped, and then uh, 14, it went up. So you didn't share the numbers with me from earlier, but I'm assuming it was still in those early, mid, or 200 range. So 2015, I think, was the first time we broke 300, and then it went back in 18 to 301, and then it just really went up. And just yesterday, I, I get this news on this uh, this company that's buying AT&T. And it's a company, literally, that I've never heard of before. And, and I think that's probably happening for a lot of people when they follow the news <clears throat> and, and watch the headlines for mergers and acquisition activity in and around aerospace, defense, and government. There are a lot of brand names that um, are clearly doing deals, the public companies and, and some of the larger organizations in, in the space. And there are some larger brand name private equity groups that are continuing to be active. But there is a part of the buyer and investor universe that I, I think a lot of folks may not be familiar with or may not have heard of. And I would say probably three major themes that we see driving that. One is the involvement of private equity investors and private equity funds in the M&A activity in these sectors has continued to increase year over year to the point where I would say in any given year going forward, we would expect private equity buyers or investors to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50% of the deal activity in the space. So by virtue of that alone, there's going to be a lot of names that you don't recognize or not a lot of buyers that aren't familiar to us on a day-to-day -day basis because they're not competing directly for contracts. They're not companies that are headquartered in the DC area. 
Um, you know, a lot of these folks are from New York or Chicago or LA or other, uh, you know, major cities across the country. And so there's an element of just unknown there, but very known to us and very much a part of uh, uh, the ecosystem. And, and in a lot of ways, those investors have become strategic investors. They understand the industry as well as anybody. Uh, the second theme is that through all of the mergers and acquisitions that you just mentioned, you know, 300 a year on average from uh, 14 through 18, that transaction activity has led to a lot of uh, changing businesses, businesses that are merging together and rebranding, companies that are merging together and then divesting assets under different names, uh, smaller companies that are uh, aggressively acquiring businesses and becoming significant buyers. Uh, that we may not have known before, may not have been on the radar. And then I would say the third uh, concept is that folks are very uh, conscious of brands in today's environment. And there is a desire to really brand businesses. And so we've seen a lot of companies change their names and you know, really try to uh, apply a significant brand and marketing strategy in this area. And I don't know that that was something that people thought about 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, but it's certainly prominent today. We see a lot of that uh, happening. So uh, it, it, it just goes to show you that uh, even when you see the name, if you look behind it, you'll, you'll find the names that you recognize. The, the deal that you mentioned, that's an Arlington Capital Partners portfolio company. You know, that's a name brand in the sector. It's just not necessarily the headline buyer in that situation, even though they're, they're backing it and, uh, and doing a great job building up that platform. Okay, I want to I want to focus on 2020 for a couple of minutes here. I was looking over the uh, the slides from when you guys did your uh, survey webinar. The first government quarter of 2020 was hot. I mean, 116 deals, uh, and then Q2 it just dropped like a friggin' brick. Q3 same thing. Can I assume the pandemic had something to do with the drop? Yes. Think about the run rate of deals if it was 116 in the first quarter of 2020. I mean, you'd be well north of 400 transactions, uh, which you mentioned this earlier, the high water mark before across the aerospace, defense and government sectors was 365, 367 transactions. So we were on a record pace in the first quarter. A few things to think about here. One is what we intended to focus on in 2020 was the election. We, we thought that was going to be the big needle mover. We thought that was going to be something that was going to impact the sector. So there was a lot of activity early in the year, a lot of activity in 2019 with folks <coughs> saying, look, if there's a change of administration, what's going to happen? Potentially tax rates go up. Potentially there's a change in the focus of where the funding goes in government budgets. And so naturally, when you get into that election cycle, people start to plan and start to think about maybe making that transition, maybe selling their business or maybe going out and acquiring a business. So that was really what we thought we were going to be focusing on. And there were two things that were really helping prop that market up. One is that interest rates are at historic lows and the availability of capital for financing transactions is at historic highs. And so it's the perfect combination of very inexpensive capital to fuel M&A transaction activity. The second is that tax rates are low on a historical basis, particularly for corporates. 
and particularly for the private equity groups and their carried interests and sort of the profitability of those types of organizations. So it really, cheap capital, low tax rates, it fuels the M&A environment. And if you're generating cash flow, if you're a business that's doing well and growing, you can only invest so many dollars back into the business on an organic basis. And there's really not much else to do with it outside of the business if you're not investing in M&A. So there's really a very healthy ecosystem uh, going into the year and, and uh, really through that first quarter. And then, you know, the p- pandemic hit and I always use kind of March 11. That is kind of the, the official start of this in my mind. That was the day that the World Health Organization said that it is a global pandemic. And personally, I have told the story a few times. It, it was the night that the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Utah Jazz NBA basketball game was canceled right beforehand because a number of the players had tested positive for the virus. And it was just sort of a snowballed over that the tail end of that week and into that weekend. And, you know, we all started working from home and the schools shut down. It was, it was that sort of <clears throat> mid-March timeframe where we just had to stop for the most part. There wasn't an opportunity to sort of just act like nothing was happening because it was changing everywhere. We didn't know how bad things were going to be. The markets were collapsing, right? The public equity markets were collapsing. We didn't know what the stimulus package was going to look like or how quickly the government was going to respond. And in that last two weeks of March and in the kind of the the April timeframe, we learned a lot because that second quarter of 2020, I think is really telling. Yeah, let's pick it up after the break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Mr. DeSanto right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Kevin DeSanto uh, of Kips DeSanto. You can find them at Kips, K I P P S DeSanto.com. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking for, uh, either buying or selling, I I strongly suggest you take a look here. So we were just getting ready to talk about Q2 of uh, 2020. Uh, So pick it up there. What we, I think, in looking back on it, would characterize it as a pause. And that wasn't necessarily what we expected at the time. But when we kind of look back, it was a pause. There were two sets of deals at that point in time, and then a third category that I'll, I'll, I'll talk about as well. One is the set of deals that had been far enough along and there was enough conviction around getting them done. So there were a number of announcements in March and April that had been well underway at when the pandemic kind of hit and, and we sort of really started to understand the situation that we're in. There was another set of deals that were midstream, right? Kind of in that middle of the road. What are we going to do? Who's our buyer? Who's our investor? What's our valuation? And then there was the deals that never started and got delayed. And so that first category of deals ended up getting done for the most part in March and April and May. And then that second category of deals that was at that 50 yard line, they went on a hold for 30 days, 45 days, 60 days into the middle of May. And then we started to see those deals get done in June, July, and August of, of 2020. And then those deals that were getting ready to hit the market, those hit the market in July and August of last year. 
And that was really that windfall of transaction activity that you saw in the fourth quarter where we peaked back up to 112 transactions in the fourth <laughs> quarter across the three sectors. And so in hindsight, it's really recognizable where the deals were and what was happening. And a lot of those fourth quarter deals, a lot of that energy that we saw, it was driven by the impending election and, and sort of this idea that if there was a change of administration, that tax rates were going to go up. And if they were going to go up, they were going to go up on January 1st, 2021. A lot of activity driven by that. There was a lot of activity that was driven by the fact that it was exhausting to go through the pandemic. It was risky. And if you could survive it, if you were doing well, it was an opportunity for somebody to sell or to diversify their holdings or to, to bring in equity to help offset some of the risk or in, in other cases, it was an opportunity to, to really pounce, right? It was an opportunity to do something very strategic or to move very quickly. And it was all really supported by the fact that the financing markets remained relatively healthy compared to what you would have thought on March 15th. I think a lot of that has to do with what came out in the stimulus package, how they supported the financial markets, the fact that the uh, equity markets recovered so significantly uh, the fact that particularly in federal government, the, the companies performed exceptionally well relative to what you might expect in the pandemic. They proved to be resilient. Um, they really were able to adjust and adapt very quickly. And we didn't see a tremendous amount of fall off in a lot of the businesses across the federal sector. It's not all businesses, right? There's certain parts of the system uh, that were impacted. Uh, those that had you know more fungible budgets or more uh, discretionary budgets or those that had a harder time doing things on a remote basis or those that had a lot of travel, particularly internationally associated with them. There's a lot of hiccups in the system, a lot of challenges. And so it's not meant to say it was easy for all. And, and frankly, I don't know that it was easy for any. Um, there were others that there were a lot of organizations that performed very well throughout all of this or just adjusted. And it was kind of life is normal, but we're home versus in an office. And so we saw very healthy performance, good capital market support, and ultimately a, a big focus by buyers and investors on the future. So they're still trying to do what they do. Uh, they're still trying to execute on strategic plans. And uh, that was a, a big driver of that activity. And, and frankly, we think that's going to continue here in, in 2021. And if you look at the number of announcements and the amount of activity in, in January and February of 2021, it's tracking consistent with what we saw in the third and fourth quarter of 2020. Okay, but let's, let's talk about some of those big deals in 2020, uh, the ones that were valued at over a billion dollars. Um, and you guys track 13 of those. To look close at the activity in the aerospace, defense, and government sectors, it helps you realize what is actually happening and how people use M&A. The fact that there were you know, 352 transactions in 2020 and 13 of those were north of a billion gives you a sense for the fact that the majority of the activity is well below a billion dollars. And frankly, right. the majority of the activity is actually below a hundred million dollars across all of these sectors. And so the M&A as a tool on a broad basis is to fill in gaps or to supercharge a growth strategy. It's not necessarily always this big transformational activity, but sometimes it can be. And um, you know, I think probably the most interesting kind of evolution 
uh, here is with respect to what uh, the folks at Veritas Capital are doing uh, and sort of have started to work on here over the course of the last three or four months where uh, they announced that they were um, using their Paraton platform to acquire a portion of Northrop Grumman, um, the federal IT and mission support services business, uh, which Northrop's divesting to them. And um, just recently announced that they are going to be acquiring and merging Perspecta into that as well, another public company. And so when you think about the value build and the opportunity there, it's, it's significant. These are going to be multi-billion dollar companies uh, owned by a private equity group under one headline in Paraton or one, one uh, parent company in Paraton. And it's going to be a a significant enterprise that's going to, I'm sure, be a major player uh, across the sector in the future. So really interesting to see that. Really interesting to see what a number of the companies had to do or were doing in maybe the aerospace sector as well. Um, you didn't really see any significant deal activity in the aerospace sector post-March of 2020. Uh, there were a few situations where there were more turnarounds or distress situations where buyers were needed to come in and help an organization kind of stay afloat or, or survive, uh, given the circumstances in the aerospace sector, right? Major fall off in air traffic, major change to the fleet as a result of this, and, and changes that are going to take years to overcome or reverse. So that was interesting to watch. And then I think we'll see the big deals again this year, but uh, those headlines are really a small part of, of the entire M&A ecosystem. It really does tend to churn in that sub $100 million size range. Yeah, Paraton, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the, the Northrop gig was only one of several last year. Is that correct? Yeah, for Veritas, uh, as an investor, and, and it's pretty, you know, sort of typical of the private equity groups to be very active, to be, you know, very engaged in, in multiple deals at any one given time. But you're right, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of activity in, in and around that space. Yeah, but your your point about the majority of the deals being under 100 million uh, really resonates because the small companies I talk to all seem to be more interested in growing by acquisition rather than organically because they think that and maybe it is speed is of the essence it is in the strategy i think it's really about risk return and allocation of capital and i don't know that a lot of smaller companies think about it in that way um, you know, just going out and buying something because it makes you bigger or it positions you for a contract vehicle doesn't necessarily always make sense. Um, you know, if you have to spend $10 million to buy a $10 million revenue business, you know, what could you have done if you had taken a million dollars and redirected that into hiring a new executive or into uh, business development or into recruiting? There's any number of uses of capital that are more efficient and less risky than buying something. And typically when you're buying something, it's because you know that the old adage of one plus one equals three is going to occur. And then it's hard work to make that actually happen. You have to put a lot of effort into that. It has to be a very <clears throat> high priority post transaction to get there. And so smaller transactions can work. They can be extremely effective, but it also has to be something that people have their sort of eyes wide open to, which is 
what are the other uses of capital? Could I push into this in a way that's going to give me a lower risk profile and a higher return? If not, you know, maybe M&A is, is the uh, answer there. But uh, the, the companies, the larger companies that do this for a living, that have acquired 10, 20, 30 businesses over time, um, you know, they have the ability to, to do these deals and to pay the prices that, that are required uh, because of the efficiency of their business models, because of the availability of capital, because of how cheap that capital is. And so there's a significant financial model that sits behind that, that we know we're increasing stakeholder value through these acquisitions. And I think that's a, it's a good lesson and it's a good way for, for smaller companies to think about these deals as well. What, as a shareholder, what, it, what is the right use of the capital here? Is it something that we should be buying? And uh, do we think we've got the team and the resources to turn it into something valuable as we move forward? Yeah, I mean, the confluence of certain influences has to come together in order for these things to work out best, right? It does. And, and a lot of times it's not, you know, sort of the, the businesses will it, maybe it, you buy something and, and it atrophies over time. You might not measure success based on whether or not it's the same size as it was before, but you might measure success on the fact that it helped position you for a new contract vehicle or a new contract. And it may not be directly tied into the legacy business or the acquired business, but the, the two combined go off and win an unrestricted full and open prime contract at an agency for a hundred million dollars. And you'd say, well, look, we never would have gotten there if it wasn't for the, the skill sets or the capabilities of the past performance of the organizations on a merged basis. And so oftentimes it's hard to track success or track internal rates of return on, on these types of deals uh, because of that, or ROI on, on these uh, return, you know, return on investment in these deals because of the fact that it it moves around, right? It's it's not necessarily linear. And I think dynamic leadership teams that are prepared for that can really take advantage of it. These can be extremely efficient uh, businesses when, when they're run that way. And so a uh, huge opportunity in there, but you know, not for the faint of heart. Not for the faint of heart. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Kevin right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with my friend and a partner. At, it is partner, right? At uh, Kips DeSanto. Uh, KipsDeSanto.com. This slide from your guys' uh, presentation really uh, grabbed my attention. Key themes emerging from 2020 and setting the table for 2021. Start with uh, wherever the hell you want to start. <laughs> there, there's a number of ways that we've thought about this. Uh, the, the macro environment, it's always the headline, and it, it's easy for people to get really kind of honed in and focused on that. What we've seen over the years is that the market doesn't necessarily respond quickly to macro changes. The market, M&A market is it, it what I'm referring to. It's often terms a longer term viewpoint. It's, it, it is a five to 10 year strategy. It's a 10 to 20 year strategy. It's not a one to two year strategy in most cases. And so when we think macro, you know, we're trying to think about what's going to be a priority for the next two, three, four, five years or longer as a result of that. And, and I, I think of something like the pandemic 
as something that you know we have to keep an eye on in terms of how that's going to influence the M&A market over time. I would anticipate that there is a number of impacts, both good and, um, and, and challenging for companies in the sector or for M&A transactions as a result of this. Think about the tail on this pandemic, the study, the research, the ability to understand how it happened, and then ultimately what we could do to avoid this in the future. You know, I would anticipate that there's a lot of work and investments, research, development, et cetera, uh, to prepare us for that. So I think companies that have the ability to support organizations, you know, maybe think about something like health and human services or uh, CDC or any number of organizations that have a very significant um, kind of tail when it comes to something like the pandemic. Um, and then you think about what the, the fiscal response has been to this. And, um, you know, if we, we get the, uh, you know, this $1.9 trillion package approved here in the near term, there's spending across many different facets of the economy and, and the market that are going to come out of that. And, uh, you know, just think about what the impact might be to the VA uh, or to, you know, modernize technology infrastructure to be able to deal with these types of uh, situations in the future or, or to even just be operating efficiently in the current environment that we're in. So we think that, you know, things like the pandemic have a long-term impact and you'll see investment dollars, you'll see buyers uh, transition to thinking about customers or budgets that are going to be positively impacted around that. At the same time, you know, I think what was driving a lot of the activity over the last five to 10 years were geopolitical risks and just the nature of, of the environment that we're operating in across the world with our uh, near peer kind of adversaries and, and just other challenges uh, around the world. We think that that's going to continue to be a major funding stream going forward. And so, you know, when you think about uh, space, which has been a very hot topic and a, a very significant place for uh, M&A transactions, a uh, very significant uh, sector for venture capital spending, uh, trying to take advantage of uh, what space offers in terms of uh, both a defensive posture and an offensive posture. We think that's going to continue to be a significant trend. I think modernization when it comes to uh, the technology infrastructure is going to be important. Uh, we have to be able to do more uh, than, than what we can today. We have to be able to collect more data. We have to be able to analyze more data. We have to be able to be in a position where we can take action based on data. And so there's going to be a lot invested in those areas as well. Um, and I would say, um, you know, sort of the, the thing that we've seen uh, at, at the macro level that's been really kind of, maybe I'll, I'll characterize it as interesting because it is from my vantage point, but it's fun to watch, you know, sort of how the cycles go on Capitol Hill and, and you know, whose budget is going where. And, and, you know, we do think that those things have, have an impact. But in general, uh, you'll see that there's M&A activity in all situations because businesses are constantly trying to position. They're constantly trying to reposition. They're constantly trying to modernize. And so uh, it's just become a fundamental part of what we do. Okay. So um, the the money market though is still strong. Yeah, and maybe that's a a place that when you we talked about sort of this idea of some names that we don't know. You know, we've seen the buyer universe expand in a way that's been pretty interesting and and probably uh, impactful 
in the coming years. Um, SPACs, I don't know if you're, you have a SPAC yet or not, but uh, you probably should. Everybody's out raising $300 million of capital to go out and buy a business. And it's kind of a, a new way for private companies to, to go public, um, special purpose acquisition uh, companies. And so that's been a big trend here. Uh, in, I think the number in 2020 is like 237 uh, SPACs went public, uh, which was, you know, a multiple of what had historically occurred. And, and early in 2021, those have been a major, major player in the market uh, for these sort of billion dollar plus transactions. Um, we've seen governments come in and be buyers of businesses or investors in businesses in a number of situations, particularly in European aerospace defense markets. And then um, we talked a lot about private equity earlier, but there's also sort of other colors of money in that kind of investment world, <clears throat> family offices, you know, large wealthy families or groups of families uh, coming together to be investors in the space. We're seeing a lot of that. And I'd say, um, you know, for a lot of the um, deals that are getting done, debt financing is a core part of that. Obviously, the banks and, um, you know, the traditional lenders are, are, are core to that and, and have been very active. But there's also, um, you know, what we would characterize as debt funds. So effectively, a private equity group that is focusing on lending money, not just investing in, in the equity of businesses. And they've helped, um, you know, create an environment where there's significant financing capacity as well. So, you know, having a lot of different unique buyers, having a lot of um, financing opportunities, it, it really does open up the aperture and provide people with lots of options to consider. And as an investment banker, as somebody that's facilitating these transactions, it really gives us a um, it, 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 it's a really creative time to try to find the right buyer, to try to find the right investor, or to, to, to try to get the right people connected on these deals, because we can come up with some pretty interesting options for our clients. Oh, I would imagine you can. Um, so, um, anything else on the emerging trends that I have, uh, missed here? I think the, the big question for us is how, how or what is going to change in the coming year or two or three? You know, might it be an increase in interest rates? Might it be a increase in tax rates? You know, might it be a, a slowdown in the economy? Or, you know, what happens after this next, you know, stimulus package occurs? I, there's a lot of unknowns uh, in all of this as well as, as we think about what the themes are. Again, I just go back to a point I've made a couple of times. I think irrespective of that, you would anticipate M&A activity to be occurring for good businesses that are in a healthy position to be able to help somebody achieve their strategic goals or to fill in strategic gaps. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, I think we'll see a lot of that. You mentioned 2013 earlier. That was really the last year where there were some pretty significant challenges um, across the sectors that we focus on, uh, think sequestration, think, you know, tax rates having increased uh, in 2013. Um, you know, there were still well, well north of 200 deals across the sectors at that point in time. So I, I would anticipate that, that we're in a, a pretty good spot here unless there's some pretty significant changes to uh, some of those bigger, bigger themes that we talked about. I, and, and, I don't anticipate them. I hope you don't. Uh, but we'll think about that in just a minute. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower 
off center on the federal news network. Uh, Kevin and I will wrap up right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. My guest today is Kevin DeSanto of Kipps DeSanto, an M&A firm in our government market, the aerospace, defense, and government technology. You guys did how many deals last year, did you say? You did 20 transactions? Very cool. But let, let's talk about what 2021 is looking like. We're in the first quarter, almost to the end of the first quarter, what are we looking at here? Our expectation based on where we sit today is that you'll see activity levels in 21 that are consistent with 2019 and 2020 when it comes to the volume of transaction activity. And it's different in each of the sectors. Aerospace obviously is, is a dramatically different fact pattern uh, than what you might be seeing in the government contracting marketplace. But it doesn't mean that the activity expectations are different. It just means that they're, the reason for it or the rationale for it is different. In you know, the airspace market, you might see more consolidation in order to uh, reduce costs or to improve footprint with various airlines or to improve on the technology that's available and, and really trying to become more efficient and to position yourself for the next cycle in, in aerospace. So the next increase and in, in the next upward trend, which you know, if you look at and read the, the industry reports or analyses or the uh, analyst reports or analyses, they, there really is an expectation that in 23 and four and five that you know, we start to return to airline traffic uh, or passenger levels that we saw in 2019. And it's just going to take some time to get back there. So there's a, an opportunity for folks to consolidate that sector, maybe do it in a at a time when valuations are a little bit lower than uh, what they may have been or uh, what they will be going forward. So there's a real kind of arbitrage opportunity in the aerospace sector. On the government side, it's really a, a different story. The companies, as we talked about earlier, have performed well. They are really in a position where they're trying to build value by increasing their competitive positioning, increasing their footprint, the access that they might have to customers, and really trying to take advantage of a market where uh, there hasn't been as significant of a setback or challenge as a result of uh, the economic dynamics that we saw play out in 2020. So uh, we see the government sector really continuing to have a lot of M&A activity as these companies build and continue to try to drive towards long-term value and, and strategy. And when you look at the results of the survey that we did across all of these deal makers, both corporates and private equity, uh, the sort of senior leadership, the senior partners at the funds, et cetera, uh, there's really a, a, an expectation that in 2021, you know, we're going to see the same levels that we saw in 2020 or, or greater. Um, you know, if you look at aerospace as an example, the respondents in that sector, roughly 75% of them expect us to be at least 5% greater in M&A activity in 21 than what we saw in 2020. In the government sector, which you know there were roughly 120 transactions last year, almost 
of the respondents expect for there to be a 5% or more increase in the volume of activity. That, that's a pretty, I think a pretty significant statement. Uh, and you know, those are the folks that are actually the ones with the, the capital and the ones who are on the buy side. And so uh, we think it's a pretty good telling statistic and, and helpful in thinking about what the future is going to hold. Cool. The valuations are up, going up? Valuations are a little more difficult to predict or project or to say affirmatively what to expect. Uh, you know, we, we like to use valuation medians. What's the median EBITDA multiple, the earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. What is the revenue multiple? What's the price to earnings multiple. We like to use those types of metrics when we think about valuation. The reality is, you know, just use that government stat that I mentioned a, a minute ago, 120 transactions in 2020. I mean, there were deals in there that were probably two or three times EBITDA, and there are deals in there that are 20 plus times EBITDA. The public companies at the end of 2020 in that sector were trading at roughly 13 times EBITDA. And so, you know, you would anticipate that valuations in the government sector, you know, mirror that or are reflective of the risk profile of the deal relative to what the, the market pricing is. And we just don't know whether or not we'll have a lot of deals that are smaller, that are lower multiples next year or whether or this year or whether or not we'll have a number of large deals that have higher multiples associated with them. So the multiples tend to be a little bit more reflective of what uh, or the valuations tend to be a little bit more reflective of, of the specific company that's being bought than necessarily a trend overall. Although I would say that pricing has been pretty consistently improving year over year in, in the past sample of years, in large part due to some of what we talked about earlier, very inexpensive access to capital, very uh, low tax rates on a relative basis, uh, very high cash flow at a lot of the acquirers. And I would say maybe a competitive environment that is making it um, beneficial to be a seller. There's more buyers, there's more investors. And anytime you have competition, that's helpful. That, that helps drive valuation. So the deal makers that we asked the question to, I would say the majority um, of them felt like there's more valuation potential in 21 than what they saw in 20. But again, I take that with a grain of salt. I think that's just a, a byproduct of people looking at good assets, um, assuming that you know they've got relatively risk-free access to capital and a lot of other good things happening in the system. So we'll be keeping our eye on that one very closely, but I'd say a pretty optimistic view of 21 from the deal makers on, on valuation. Okay, I want to skip ahead a little bit. We only have a couple of minutes left. So uh, COVID-19 and the uh, new uh, M&A, new normal. Um, what, what are your, uh, what's your crystal ball telling you here? I can't wait for 2022. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there is that. Uh, yeah, I... <laughs> It, it, so, it feels like folks have adjusted. I think that's really the best way to think about this. And we still have a job to do. We still have a strategy to build. We still have a company to run. We still have a, 
value to build. And, and that's really, I think the most people that we talk to both through the survey and just in general feel like it's manageable. Um, again, it's the, the assumption is that we're talking about businesses that are performing well or have the ability to perform despite what's happening. And I know that's not for everybody, so it's hard to, to generalize. Um, and it's not every sector, it's not every industry, but the reality is, particularly in aerospace defense and government, I think folks feel like um, they have the ability to continue to invest and build and know that if there is downside, that it's somewhat manageable or that the M&A activity is built to actually hedge against that downside or to help put them in a position where they've got more opportunity and greater growth potential. And some people see it as an opportunity to double down, um, right? Where if, if things are going the way they are today, why not double down and, and take an opportunity to build and, and likely things will be better in a couple of few years or whatever the case might be. So I, I think that folks have generally adapted. That was really the message, um, you know, from a statistical vantage point, almost 50% of the folks responded that the impacts of the uh, pandemic on their M&A strategy was manageable, which means that we can figure it out. We just have to adapt and adjust a little bit. And the biggest change for us has been, um, you know, a lot of times our work with our client is done remotely for confidentiality purposes or for other reasons, even in a normal environment. But the big change has been doing Zoom meetings versus in-person meetings. And, and I think that's the case across a lot of businesses. And, and in one like ours, where relationships are so important, that was probably the one thing that we worried the most about. Could we still get buyers or investors across the finish line if we had to do most of this on Zoom or all of this on Zoom? And uh, frankly, you know, people have gotten comfortable with it and figured it out. And it's been a year, right? So it, it's not <coughs> unusual to adapt or adjust, adjust when you're in, in such a long-term uh, situation. We, we, we can't just sit and wait. We've got to figure it out. And, and most folks have. And, and it's not like people had a choice. So no, that, that's it. We still, yeah. We, and, and again, it's companies that are trying to spend or allocate their capital effectively or private equity groups that have uh, funds that have to get invested. That's their job. And, and so I think you're seeing a lot of that and people saying, look, I, I wish I could do it the old way, but I've got to do it this way. Or here's an evolution of the old way to help us fit it into the current environment. Cool. Kevin, always a pleasure, man. Again, we have to do this a little more frequently. So uh, let's chat soon and come up with some topics. This is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government. I focus particularly on social selling, leveraging LinkedIn, helping companies build a specific area of expertise and build that in to a subject matter expert platform communicate that via content, and then deploy the social aspect, again, particularly LinkedIn. If that resonates, drop me a line, Mark Amtower at Gmail, and thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
There are a million reasons e-commerce shoppers don't buy. In fact, 97% abandon their first store visit. AdRoll retargeting keeps your brand on their mind, so they come back to buy. Visit AdRoll.com to start retargeting today. Hey, electrical contractors. I'm Matt from ABB. Are rising costs and product delays keeping you up at night? We can help you contractor better. ABB's contractor resources are designed to help you increase productivity and profitability on your commercial construction projects. Check out Contractor Better today. Visit go.abb/contractorbetter.